Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. On September 12, 1995, McKay Everett disappeared from his home in Conroe, Texas. There was no sign of forced entry. It was just as if McKay had walked out of his own free will. And to this day, McKay's mother, Paulette, feels that justice was never truly served. Ransom is available now. Listen at ransompodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm here with executive producers Mark and Jacob, as well as our associate producer Whitney, and we just want to share with you another bonus episode. We have some more recent updates that we wanted to share, and also we're still continuing to get tons and tons of questions from our listeners, so big thanks to all of our listeners for your engagement and being involved and caring enough to send in the questions, and so we just want to take some time to go through as many of those as we can. And so with that said, I want to hop into things. Somebody want to give an update? I know, Mark, you had one you wanted to go through. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Michael Grace is currently running against Cassie Coleman for the 10th Circuit District Attorney. We played our interview with Michael on episode 15. And to refresh you, even though Michael also agrees that new evidence would be helpful to the case, He's also alluded to the fact that new evidence isn't necessarily needed to reopen the case. So for a little backstory, the last two decades, Bilbo Mitchell was the district attorney and he ultimately ran unopposed. So then when he retired last October, he recommended Cassie Coleman, then assistant district attorney, to be appointed to take his place. And the governor later made that appointment. So with the podcast being released in the middle of an election season, tensions have gotten extremely high. And we've seen a lot of fighting and families having issues. But also now we're starting to see people who are very highly supportive of the kind of justice for Christian movement have some pretty major issues. 
For instance, Michael Grace was recently arrested for contempt of court. So he was running late for a trial and he wasn't going to make it. So he sent a secretary to let the judge know that he was running late. He was slapped with contempt of court and sentenced to 24 hours in jail, as well as I believe it was a $500 fine. So this was just a really heavy handed response to someone being late. Um, According to our contacts in the area, according to other attorneys that we've talked to in the area, this is just not a normal response. And so we just found that really odd. And the important thing to note is that the charge against Michael Grace was not the only charge that came forth in this time. There was also charges of cyberstalking against two very strong proponents and two very vocal people online who are supporters of Christian and the Andriacchio family and finding justice for Christian, who believe the case should be reopened, but who are also very vocal that they need change in their city and that they are disagree and are against some of the public officials, whether it be in the police department or elected officials that they are against. And they were actually hit with charges of cyberstalking, which came from Whitley's uncle. And they appeared in court just recently the charges were dropped, they defeated those charges, and they're free to go. Yeah, another really interesting thing that happened as we were wrapping up the season of Culpable is that Cassie Coleman's husband reached out to us via email and said that he was interested in speaking with us and had some information to share with us. And so we followed up with him and asked if we could ask what was the information that he had to share with us. And he responded with this email I'll go ahead and just read that email. So he said, I suppose one of the highlights would be a possible exclusive interview with Whitley, along with other interviews with some of the people culpable referred to multiple times during the podcast, but never contacted for additional information. If Black Mountain Media is interested in possible discussion, I would be interested in talking with Jacob, Mark or Dennis on a recorded line. I believe after a few quick verifications on both of our parts, there will be an understanding of my authority with this position to make a possible offer of additional information. So we thought that was really weird, to be honest with you, that after some checking that realized that this was Cassie Coleman's husband. And so I gave him a call and surprisingly, he did answer and spoke with him and he basically, you know, confirmed that he was Cassie Coleman's husband and that he was basically wanted to set up a an offer to try to broker a deal for us to speak with Whitley and with Cassie. And one of the things that he said on that call was that we would have to sign a contract that basically, you know, it would be a very controlled situation, a controlled conversation. And I, you know, told him that, you know, we don't, we don't normally do that type of thing, but if he wanted to send that over, I'd be happy to review that and get back with him. I did let him know that, you know, as normal procedure, we're happy to record anyone on or off the record. But he seemed to be very adamant that if we talked with Cassie, we would have to sign this contract. And then, you know, we kind of left it at that. Cassie's husband, Jay, said that he would send over the contract and asked me to follow up via text. So I did that almost immediately and said, you know, thanks again for reaching out. Please send over any information. We would 
we would love the opportunity and the invitation still stands that we would love to speak with Cassie on the record or off the record. We've still yet to hear back from Jay or Cassie. We haven't received the contract that he mentioned or anything. And so, yeah, we just found that again, really kind of weird that Cassie Coleman's husband reached out to us wanting to broker a deal for us to be able to speak with Whitley and with Cassie. And again, that Cassie would not be willing to speak with us essentially on the record. To say we never heard back. I mean, we don't mean that as any sort of knock or anything. I mean, that's their decision to make. This is just simply to talk about kind of a weird occurrence that happened and that there was never any follow-up. And so maybe he just felt there's no need to follow up on that. And if so, then that's all there is really to, to make of it. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. So anyways, with all that said, let's go ahead and pivot and kind of get into some of the questions that we've been getting from our listeners. Again, thanks to all you all. We're still getting flooded with tons and tons of questions, so we've selected some of those and uh, just want to go through those. So Whitney, if you wouldn't mind just reading each of those questions and we'll take turns answering them. Our first question is, did Whitley's phone have activity during the time she claims she was sleeping? So unfortunately, the short answer here is we just have no way of knowing. It's our understanding that her phone records were subpoenaed. But as far as if authorities ever got those phone records or if they ever confiscated her phone, we have no way of knowing that and have seen no records to indicate that. Now, it's important to note that you know, in Dylan's story that day, he claims that her phone was broken and an altercation with Christian in the apartment. Now, that said, records could likely still be obtained and the phone could have been confiscated. But again, I'll just go back and say that we have no way of knowing for sure. And to address the question directly again of 
whether or not there was phone activity during the time she claimed she was sleeping, I would say no, not on her phone. But I do still find a lot of the phone activity on Christian's phone during that time frame very suspicious as far as the texts and calls to Matt Miller, who she was with the night before and who she had been having a side relationship with close to the time of Christian's death. That activity is still very suspicious, and but that occurred on Christian's phone, not Whitley's phone. Since sending out detectives to question people associated with Christian, do you think it may hinder or compromise a possible future trial? Since the suspects know about the podcast, it will make it more difficult to expose any slip-ups by them. Yeah, this is kind of a tricky question to answer. I've thought about this too, about, you know, we've laid out everything that's known about this case. And so if and when this were to go to a trial, could the information that's been laid out affect that trial? In other words, could it affect the way that the suspects in this would approach and that their attorneys would, you know, attempt to defend them or tell their side of the story? And yeah, I think it I think it could play a role in that, but at the end of the day, you can't have that mindset when your ultimate goal is to just tell a story and lay out the facts. So could it affect it? Sure, I'm, I, I guess it could. But at the end of the day, we can't change what someone says in a trial. Even if this podcast was never made and this goes to a trial, we can't prevent somebody from going under oath and then lying on the stand or telling a different story than what actually happened. So the end goal was to get this case reopened and hopefully it go to a trial. And if that happens, any thoughts of, well, could we have given too much information that could help them in that trial or whatever it might be, that can't really become a concern when you're just trying to lay out the truth. All right. Next question. My question is regarding Travis and his letter sent to the PI group. Did y'all ever find out who bailed him out? Do you think it could have been a representative of either the AG, DA, former DA, or MPD in order to keep him quiet? Have y'all been able to talk to Travis anymore? No, it actually wasn't anybody from law enforcement or any state agency or any kind of representative. He was actually bailed out by a family member. Since we did play Travis's letter, RPIs have kept in touch with him, but he has yet to go on the record. Okay, another question we got is... I just got through listening to episode nine, and during Dylan's account, he said that all he could picture was Christian's hands behind his back. The reports all said his hands were in front of him under his torso. Any ideas of why that was said? Yeah, that's that's a great question and is a question we receive over and over and over. And so let me try to clear the air on that a little bit, because when Dylan said he has this vision of remembering Christian's arms behind him or behind his back that kind of paints this different picture now i can't say why he remembers it that way or framed it that way the way i see it and looking at the photos from the crime scene is his body is at the center of the bathtub his upper body is draped over the side of the tub into the tub head down obviously but on the outside of the tub what you have are his 
legs are not quite pressed up against the tub. They're away from the tub a little bit. His knees are obviously rested on the floor. And his arms are really, in my opinion, more off to his side. So just to confirm, his his arms are on the outside of the tub. And his arms are rested up against the side of the tub next to his legs. So I wouldn't say they were underneath him. And I also wouldn't say what Dylan said, which is that they were behind him. Now, this is just from the crime scene photo. So we have no way of knowing could his hands have been behind him or could his hands have been underneath him and then his body was moved some. And that's what the picture show that is that they're off to his side. But if you just base it off the crime scene photos, his arms are off to their respective sides, rested up against the side of the tub next to... I would say his thighs. Another question we got asks, the only other thing I'm completely puzzled by is why hasn't anyone done a bigger investigation on Bilbo? It's as though even the PIs are afraid of him. How could he not be investigated? After the first time a person said, if Bilbo is involved, nothing will happen. And then all that came to light since I'm very confused as to why he was never looked into on a more in-depth scope, or maybe you are doing so an undercover, so to speak. So the first thing I'd say is we didn't get into this to do some grandiose investigation into Bilbo Mitchell, the district attorney at the time of Christian's case. He is a central figure. And so, yes, we wanted to talk to him, but he has not come forward to talk to any parties associated with the Coldwell podcast. And I really don't blame him for that. It would be great if he did come forward. But. Keep in mind, Bilbo's an attorney. He knows the law, and he knows that legally he doesn't have to talk to us. He doesn't have to talk to a podcast company, and I'm not surprised that he's chosen not to. Now, we have had several people come forward with information that paints Bilbo in a really bad light, but we're not trying to turn this into a smear campaign against Bilbo. We would love to know his thoughts on Christian's case and why it was handled the way it was and why he believes what he believes. But the real question is, if the case is reopened, will the authorities investigate Bilbo Mitchell for his handling of this case and potentially handlings of other cases outside of Christian's? Another listener asks, after listening to the 911 call, you can clearly hear when the 911 operator asked Dylan if Christian had mentioned that he was going to take his life. He said no, he being Dylan. Then why did he create that story about Christian trying to kill himself? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, we have in Dylan's testimony this very articulate discussion of Christian putting a gun to his head, threatening suicide. They take the gun away, they hide the gun, and then right before. Dylan leaves, he gives Christian back the gun and then leaves. That story has been communicated multiple times and we've had different recordings of the same story. So it is odd that when the 911 dispatcher asks, the initial answer, which would have been his first recorded response, is no. (laughs) That is curious because when Whitley's asked the exact same question about Christian ever uh, threatened to commit suicide, she also said she didn't think so. But there's text messages, and she would have been witness as well to him holding the gun to his head, supposedly. So, yeah, we we want to know the same question. I'd really like to know as well. 
Another listener asks, why didn't they drug test the two at the apartment when Christian died? Could they have proved if Whitley was so messed up on Xanax to sleep through a gunshot? Again, I think this comes back to the initial investigation where a lot of things could have been done had it actually been investigated for more than 45 minutes. I'm sure that they could have done a test on Whitley to see if she was under the influence and what all she had taken, but they didn't, and that's the reality. They took her word for everything that she gave in her statement and really nothing more. This is a question we've gotten several times from listeners, and it says, in an earlier episode, it was discussed that there were two men seen leaving Christian's apartment the day he died. It was mentioned their names were omitted and that this information was passed on to law enforcement, but this was never touched on again in later episodes. Has there been any updates on this? There definitely seems to be strong indications that there were two additional individuals. Yeah, you have one person who was there who saw two men leaving, who she was able to identify one of them. Uh And then we have another person who Hayes Mitchell shares information with, alluding to that two different gentlemen had involvement and know what happened to Christian. So you combine those things and there does really seem to be substance there. But we can't, with only that, we can't just take that and air it out, implicating criminal activity against these two names. And so we really wanted to dig deeper and try to find more there. But the authorities know, and that's the the most important thing. And so, again, pending a reopening this investigation or this ever going to a trial, my hope would be that they would, you know, turn every stone. And that would include that these two names that have been brought into this mix. And there does seem to be some information that implicates they could have had some involvement in this. Well, also, you know, we have a First Amendment attorney and they give us full feedback of any potential issues where we may be putting ourselves into legal issues. So we really are very careful to make sure that anything we put out there is done the proper way. Okay. One listener asks, have you guys considered that Hayes Mitchell is involved and that's why people don't want to talk because of how powerful his dad is? To answer your question directly, yes, this is something we have definitely considered is that Hayes could have had some involvement. It's not something I necessarily lean towards. The information that's been shared with us and the information that we've gathered is not so much points to the fact that he had involvement, rather that he knows intimate information related to Christian's death and people that could have been involved in it. That information has been shared with multiple parties, and that information has been shared with authorities, including Bilbo Mitchell. And so to answer your question about Bilbo, yeah, if there's substance there, if that's true, what Hayes shared, I think it's totally believable that, you know, you wouldn't want that information to get out there about your kid or these people he's implicating. But we just, we have no way of knowing that for sure. And we also have no way of explaining why it doesn't appear that there was any sort of investigation into these people who had been implicated, who were then also you know, corroborated in stories by two different witnesses who we called Mary and Kelly in the podcast. Another listener asks, I was curious if the actual death or shooting took place in the bathroom. I lean towards yes. 
I mean, we get theories sent our way all the time of could Christian have gone to gun night and been killed there? Or could it have happened right when he walked in the apartment? Or could it have happened on the mattress? And that's why the mattress is carved up. And then he was moved. But all of that would be a very, very elaborate cover-up that I just don't really believe is what we're dealing with here. I mean, you talk to experts and you talk to, you know, Dr. Arden especially, and experts believe that he was killed in the bathroom. That's where the blood is, although the blood doesn't really make sense because there's an extreme lack of it. But there is a pool of blood in the tub where he was found. There are no other injuries to indicate that he would have died by a different cause that, you know, some people have pointed out that he had this fracture on his skull in the x-ray pictures and that he could have been killed by blunt force trauma and then it been staged there and he was shot. Interesting theory, but, you know, Dr. Arden states that that injury to the skull is consistent with the gunshot wound, then the bullet that would have traveled through his skull would have caused that fracture. So there really just isn't any substantial evidence to say that he would have been killed anywhere other than that bathroom. But I think the reason that question gets raised so much is because there are so many question marks at the scene because so much doesn't add up at the scene. And I think that points to more so that it's because he was killed in the bathroom, but he wasn't found in the appropriate position he should have been found in had he been killed in that bathroom, that the body had to have been moved based on the lividity and that there are additional question marks based on the rigor mortis and the time had passed before the 911 call was placed. So it's to me is more so he must have been killed in the bathroom, but things at the scene don't align as far as the blood and the positioning of the body. And so it seems as though there was some sort of staging that took place after the death had occurred. Our last email question for today is if Whitley was asleep and did not hear the gunshot, there are texts on Christian's phone sent to Matt's phone that were deleted. Wouldn't that prove that she wasn't asleep? Yeah. So this was something we touched on in episode 14, where we discussed the case file and uh, some portions of the phone extractions. And yes, there are deleted texts recovered on the phone sent to Matt Miller from Christian's phone on February 26. For example, one at 1.33 p.m. that says, do you want to hang out? And this was just a minute after a call was placed to Matt. And there's more calls to his phone around 3.44 and 3.46. And then there's another text that says answer, which was also deleted. And then more calls made to him at 3.47, 3.49, 3.55. This is all happening before the 911 call was ever made. And it's pretty close to the time the 911 call which is interesting to consider. But yeah, all these text messages to Matt in that time frame are deleted. And so it's hard to say it's such a circumstantial thing because this all happened on Christian's phone. So could he have sent those? Sure. But there's two things for me that stand out as to why I don't believe that's the case. One, I believe Christian was dead before 1.33 p.m. And I don't believe that on my own knowledge. I believe that based on what the science says. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, let's just say hypothetically, he was still alive at this time. I can't make any sense of why in the world he would delete his own text messages on his phone 
to Matt why delete them why are any other text messages on his phone deleted why are those deleted to me while it is circumstantial it really when paired with the science that he was likely dead at that point it makes a lot more sense that that was Whitley using his phone and she was the one who elected to delete those text messages because it looks damning and because it gives another tie to Matt Miller and just adds to the confusion of what the heck was going on that day. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Before we wrap up, was there anything else that you all wanted to discuss? Any other updates or questions or anything? Yeah, I actually want to ask you guys a couple of questions. You know, kind of now that the the whole primary season one is done and we're just kind of doing some bonus episodes, how have you experienced this process? Like what, what was this process for you? Hmm. That's a tough question to answer. Well, it was a lot more than I ever anticipated. I definitely underestimated the work that goes into making a podcast itself, the actual production side of things, the writing and the seemingly ever-changing script and story arc and interviews that pop up that you don't expect and tips that come in that you don't expect. And then it's like the product is always changing till the very last minute when you're releasing and you're always wanting to tweak it and make it sound better and try to find ways to help the listeners really connect with the story. And we have taken that very seriously. And so the amount of hours that have gone to this, you're not even able to equate. I mean, we've very much poured ourselves into this project over the last year. But even the story itself is just has taken turns that we just never expected. I think I expected the idea of working on the story and writing the script was very exciting, but to me was just, again, something I underestimated. I thought we would meet with Andrew Accios and gather information and just be able to go 
back to home base and write a story and record it and there you go you're done and that's just not the reality of it the reality is it's a all day everyday project and you know you're in constant communication with different people who want to talk to you and who know the case and in constant communication with the family and late night text messages and conversations and asking questions and trying to get clarity and there's just a lot that goes into it, but really what I what I really didn't expect going to this was how much of an emotional roller coaster it was. The story itself is tragic, which I don't think anyone can deny. And what the Andriakios have gone through over the past five years is tragic. And I'm I talk about this in episode fifteen. And there's clearly, no matter what happened, there's injustice that has happened here. And it was poorly investigated. And in my opinion, really needs to be reinvestigated. But Ray has, you know, this has been a very emotional process for the family. And we've gotten to see that firsthand. We've gotten to sit across the table from them several times as Ray has an understandable breakdown type of moment. And it's important to air those moments out because... I think it really helps listeners understand some of the weight of what they would have gone through. None of us will ever fully understand that, but we wanted to convey that this has been a really tough process and has been a really heavy burden to take on that they haven't shouldn't have had to take on. And more importantly, this has just been a huge loss to their family. And Jacob, with your background doing post-production work on other podcasts and working with Resonate Recordings and being kind of our audio expert at Black Mountain Media, you were also thrusted into a role that you probably never expected and kind of became, you did a lot of investigative work on the ground with our team of PIs and Mark, you were there as well. You know, it was a very divide and conquer type of thing, but Jacob, you were there in Key West and Meridian as well. And we're kind of tasked with being the person to make sure that, you know, good audio was getting acquired there. And so in turn kind of became a private investigator in a sense. And we're even involved in some of the line of questioning with different players who were interviewed. And so I would assume that when this started, that wasn't something that you expected to happen and would just be kind of curious to hear what that experience was like. Yeah. To answer your question, 100%, not something I expected going into this. You know, I think at the end of the day, it's something that I I knew, you know, needed to be done. We needed to go out there and we needed to to pursue these key players to get them on the record. And obviously for myself, (laughs) I wanted to have good audio if we did get them on the record. But yeah, going, I mean, going with with a team of PIs was was very eye-opening, not only to have the curtain pulled back of how they work, but also just to to see the how hard they work and how much time they put into to finding people and to tracking people down and to getting the appropriate information they need and then approaching the people. To be honest, like I was, there were times where it was really scary because you're approaching these people and you're knocking on doors and you have no clue who's on the other side or what's on the other side or what kind of situation you're walking into. And, and sometimes it can be a scary situation, and obviously that's not something that, that I'm used to. 
And so, yeah, I mean, there were, I was very glad to be with professionals who knew what they were doing and who I knew had my back if anything went down. But yeah, it was, it was a very eye opening and quite frankly, somewhat scary experience to do that. You know, it, it was, it was kind of exciting at times, but it was also kind of scary. To go back to what you said about like the, the time and the energy that these PIs put into their work is also probably something you experienced firsthand, I would say, because I remember both times when you returned from those trips, you just looking like a total zombie. And I can also remember, you know, on the first trip when you were in Key West, I remember staying up late hoping for, you know, some sort of update or some sort of contact with somebody. And, you know, it's like one in the morning and haven't heard anything in a little while. And so I just assume, you know, y'all have probably called it a night and we'll touch base tomorrow. And then, you know, in comes a text at like 2.30 that you all are still tracking someone down and trying to make contact with whoever, either Jordan or Whitley. I can't remember. And it's just, it's crazy. I mean, because you have to morph your schedule, I guess, to the activity of these people you're pursuing. And so if they're still going strong at two in the morning, then you need to still be going strong at two in the morning as well. And so I'm, I'm sure that was just exhausting. And a, a, probably another thing you didn't expect getting into it was the hours <laughs> that they put into it. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes too, I think we saw this, I think more so in Meridian. And there were times we would go out and spend hours upon hours looking for somebody and then nothing would come of it, you know, and that's somewhat of a cost you you know, or a risk, I guess you have to take whenever you, you have to try to find someone, you may spend hours sitting out on, on surveillance, trying to get someone and and you may never get them. Okay. So before we wrap up one final question, when you go back and think about the last year of production, what is kind of that one moment that sticks out to you? Do you guys have that kind of moment? You want to go first, Jacob? Do you, sure. ha- do you have one that comes to mind off the top of your head? So, yeah, I guess if I think back on the whole project, the one moment that really sticks out the most for me would have been our second trip whenever we went down for Wishing Night, which you heard in episode two. And I think just thinking back to that, just seeing, you know, the team there, we had a team from Tenderfoot uh, and our team there. And then obviously Christian's family and all the friends there that came together just to remember him and just to know that that's something that they had been doing and continue to do and that, that Raid puts on and the family puts on every year uh, and will continue to do every year. And just thinking of those those lanterns, you know, going up into the night sky, I think that's mm. that's something that, that really, I think, will continue to stick with me. And just as I, as I think about this whole project, uh, just remembering Christian and remembering his life, that's something that I think really, really sticks out to me and, and just as a is something that's that's really meaningful to me. Yeah, I think I would 100% echo that because one of the first moments we realized we really needed to talk about Christian and make it about his life and his impact as well was when we first sat down with Ray. I think it really doubled down when we went back for that second trip and got to experience that wishing night. It was one of those one of those experiences that is exhausting but in a good way. Like it, it helped the weight of everything really sink in and, and affirm that we need to talk about this. I mean, maybe people want us to hop right into what the scene looked like and what happened, but 
we're going to take a gamble here on we feel like this is important to air out. And so that's what we elected to do in the first half of episode two was take a little bit of a deeper dive into Christian and his impact and how he was viewed by some of those who were very close to him, who he held, had special relationships with, such as the Smiths and his best friend Taylor Dial as well. So yeah, the that night was definitely one to be remembered and all this. And like you said, just seeing all those lanterns like drift off and you know, I think I even framed it that way in episode two is just like you look over and this group over here is just in tears and you don't really know exactly why, but obviously it has something to do with the loss of Christian. And then, you know, another couple family members are cutting up talking about some funny story or something he got into or whatever. And it's just this interesting dynamic. And was just, I remember feeling very exhausted leaving that night. But like I said, in, in a good way of just like, it was just a lot to take in, especially as like total outsiders that everyone there's looking at us with all of our sound equipment and everything. Like who the heck are these guys? So it was just, that was a really cool night that definitely stuck with me yeah. as well. I think one of the, one of my favorite moments was definitely getting to speak with Dr. Jonathan Arden. I've always had kind of a passion for true crime. And this was a very much a bucket list project for me that I didn't really anticipate to just come together the way that it did, but was definitely eager to take it on when the opportunity arose. But being someone who's always been into watching shows about true crime or Dateline specials or a good portion of my nights, I go to bed with forensic files playing on the TV. And so to be able to sit down with someone who just is brilliant and who has tons of experience, acclaimed forensic pathologist and Dr. Jonathan Arden was just really neat for me. I mean, we only used probably 10 minutes of his audio, but we sure weren't in a rush to get out of there and just wanted to talk to him. And I think we we had to re- whittle down three plus hours of audio down to 10, 10 minutes to fit into the episode. But getting to talk to him was just amazing. And, and he was kind of the, he, he said a line that has always stuck with me that kind of like crossed my mind as I looked over this case. He made the comment that when you look at the evidence and you're considering this theory of suicide, it doesn't add up. It, it certainly can, you can come up with all sorts of theories and you can interpret some evidence in different ways, but at the end of the day, the evidence does not add up. And that has stuck with me to the point that I even reiterated it once more in closing in episode 15 is like, there's, there's no way around that. There is no way anyone can come forward with an explanation of suicide that you can't point to X, Y, and Z and say, well, then that doesn't add up. Even Arrington's theory on culpable negligence, while I understand some of his points is another one where you're like, but if you really dive into it, it doesn't add up. Whether it's the bullet hole or the position of the gun or the position of the body or the rigor mortis or clavidity, there's so much science in this case that it's honestly a shame that that wasn't enough to bring justice because a lot of cases don't have that science and are able to find resolution. Whereas you have a case here where there is 
tons of science along with tons of statements and inconsistencies that point heavily to foul play. And so just overall, that comment he made, which ended up becoming that title for our, I guess you'd call it science-based or forensic-based episode, it, it actually ended up, we ended up adapting it for the title. And it's just has stuck with me because there's a lot of truth in that. As, as generic of a statement as that sounds like, there is a lot of uh, truth uh, behind that. And just getting to talk to Arden and sit down with him and him walk through his report and the work that he did on this and the conclusion he reached ultimately, which is that the manner of death should be homicide and that he would attest that in court to this day, speaks volumes and gave us a lot of hope for, well, if the science at the end of the day is what you can really hinge on in this case, and you have this acclaimed forensic pathologist who's willing to say on the record, I'll go stand in a trial right now and defend my points here is huge and was very encouraging to us to know, okay, well, if we get to that point, he still stands by what he said. So that was something I look back on. I remember a lot was that experience of meeting with him. Yeah, that was a really cool experience. What about you, Mark? Anything that you asked the question, but anything that stand out moment for you or something that you really remember? Yeah, I think that kind of flashbulb moment, that one that kind of burns in your brain for me. I remember early on going through all of the documents, the MPD report and the, all the different correspondence that Ray had had, a lot of the social media chatter from right around the time Christian had died. And I had not gone through Knox's report yet. And so I remember sitting in the conference room and I had just had not had a chance to get through that report. And I was scrolling through it kind of reading through nonchalantly, getting the first go around. And then all of a sudden I came across some of the autopsy pictures that were in our, in Knox's report. And I wasn't expecting it. So it just took me uh, back. I just remember like right away feeling just really anxious uh, seeing them and then like kind of thinking about what I just seen. And, you know, I was telling you, you were sitting right next to me. Like I, like that's probably the most real moment that I've had in the entire thing. Cause you realize, man, this We've heard the stories, but at the time we still hadn't talked to the Smiths. So we, we, we heard these stories about Christian, about who he was. And then you're looking at these pictures of lifelessness and tragedy. That's kind of when I, I really, really wanted to make sure that we got to tell Christian's story. And then after talking to the Smiths and talking to Taylor, people outside the family who these are probably the people who knew him the best outside of his immediate family um, and had the most interaction with him on a day to day for, you know, the longest period of time and hearing them talk about him for me, that's when I was like, we really, really want to make sure that we do justice to telling people who he was. Was he a perfect kid? No. I mean, he's going to have made mistakes, right? But the general underlying essence of kind of who he was as an individual hearing all that, but then seeing this picture of that being gone and the absence of that, that that's when I, I really knew I wanted to be immersed in the story and understand what's going to, you know, what happened. But that also brought the, the weight, the heaviness of what we were getting into at that time. Yeah, that totally makes sense because it is interesting to hear the people who are close to him talk about who he was. And, and in essence, it is a mixed bag. But like one thing that remains consistent in talking to anybody that knew him was that he was full of life. Mm -hmm. And when that guy entered the room, it was like light entering the room. 
so to then you know unexpectedly be looking through files and then see a picture of this guy that you've been told was this type of person now you see this person who was once full of life laying lifeless on a table yeah. is very eye-opening um and, and it really just makes again same way with you know experiencing the wishing night is just another instance of you can't really plan it and it's like that weight just sinks in even more of the reality of what happened and what we're dealing with here and the tragedy of it all yeah so we're gonna go ahead and wrap things up here we hope that we are able to address some of the questions that you listeners have sent in we hope you found that you were able to learn something from this and get some new information as you know we have a reward out and we are continuing to investigate this so we hope to be back to give updates or answer more questions so just stay tuned and we appreciate everyone's interest in this and everyone continuing to send their questions in and everyone being so engaged it's just been really neat to experience the outpour and so thanks again to everyone thanks again for tuning in and we hope to be back with something in the near future culpable is a production of black mountain media and tenderfoot tv in conjunction with cadence 13 culpable is written and hosted by me dennis cooper executive producers are jacob bozarth mark Mennery. Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, and me, Dennis Cooper. Associate producer, Whitney Bozarth. Audio editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Jacob Bozarth, Pat Kicklighter, Dayton Cole, and Lynn Blue of Resonate Recordings. If you have a podcast or are considering starting a podcast of your own, I urge you to check them out at resonaterecordings.com. Theme music and score by Dirtport Robbins. Additional score by Makeup and Vanity Set. Additional music by Lovers and Mad Men. Cover art is by Drew Bardana. We'd like to thank Sheila Wysocki for helping us investigate this case. In addition, we'd like to thank the entire team of PIs who have helped and continue to help investigate this case. We'd like to extend a special thanks to Mike Hines, Courtney Cooper, Mason Lindsay, Meredith Stedman, and Lance Black. We encourage our listeners to check out the Andriacchio's nonprofit, magnoliasun.com, which was created in honor of Christian. Their mission is to provide appropriate footwear and clothing for children in need with emphasis placed on children in state custody. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcast. Show notes as well as bonus content can be found on our website, culpablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode and this podcast, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And lastly, if you have any information related to the death of Christian Andriacchio, please email us at tips at blackmountainmedia.net or call us at 470-300-4915.